Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, we learn a bit more about Sweden's experience with its light-touch regulation during the COVID-19 pandemic from Joan Norberg and Jeff Singer. And Cato adjunct scholar Sahar Khan evaluates the U.S. departure from Afghanistan and the humanitarian and economic disaster in Afghanistan now under Taliban control for a full year. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. I'm going to start this Cato Roundtable with an apology to Trevor Burris, because Trevor, you have more important things to be doing right now, which is rapidly uh, assembling the Cato Institute's annual first and best review of the most recent uh, term of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the Cato Supreme Court review. Of course, uh, details uh, with uh, high-level and yet accessible articles to the interested layman about the cases, the, the important cases of the most recent uh, Supreme Court term. Uh, so, uh, first of all, my apologies for taking you away from that that work as you are uh, trying to keep the hair in your head as you finish this project. And of course, we're also joined by uh, Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs. And we're just going to sort of review and preview a bit of uh, what surrounds the Cato Institute's Constitution Day uh, festivities that occurs every year. And um, when we when we think about cases of this Supreme Court term, uh, of course, there is uh, Dobbs, which, uh, as Clark mentioned before we started recording, libertarians disagree on the issue of abortion. Uh, but for our our interest, in uh, advancing liberty, for having a rational system of government. Uh, one of the massive cases in this most recent Supreme Court term, West Virginia v. EPA. And uh, if I recall correctly, correctly, Willie Yateman wrote the Cato brief in that case. So detail for us just in general, what was the, what was the question here and what did the court do? It's an interesting case that has been the issue has been percolating for a while, and you could argue that under this thing that is called the major questions doctrine, there were a few cases decided under it this term. It was it's about a greenhouse gas rule passed by the EPA under the Clean Air Act. It has a very complicated history, which I won't get into. But the the basic question in this case is a question that concerns all administrative agencies that are empowered by Congress to pass certain rules and whether they transgress that power by going to do more than they're allowed to do by Congress. And that is that idea that doing more than you're allowed to do by Congress under the statute has become called the major questions doctrine. And for quite a while, it was ill-defined and it wasn't clear you know, what it actually meant. And in West Virginia versus EPA, the chief justice came out and said, this is what it means. It essentially means that if an agency claims a large amount of power that it does not seem that Congress intended to give it in the statute or wasn't even contemplating giving it, then we're going to say this is probably an overextension of agency power uh, and put together a test, a little bit of a test saying, 
this is how you can tell if an agency is stepping beyond the the congressional statute that authorizes it. And it's it's a huge decision that going forward, it's going to be a little bit hard to apply by by lower courts, uh, but it will be applied. And it's an interesting situation now when Congress is stagnant and we have an administration that changes over every four or eight years and the agency tries to do something entirely different than before, depending on the politics of the time, and Congress isn't really passing new laws. So every time an agency tries to do something sort of radically different, they're going to have to be concerned with transgressing on this major questions doctrine, which came out in the West Virginia decision. Um, One of the important elements here uh, that I believe uh, Willie Yateman put into his brief is the idea that did Congress have an opportunity to speak on this issue and uh, decide not to speak on the issue? Well, you know, Trevor's given the most charitable take, I think. And another take might be to say that there's a real question about whether we as a society should incur tens or maybe hundreds of billions of dollars in expense by encouraging electricity producers to switch over from fossil fuel sources to renewables like solar and wind. Um, And that's a real question. And there's no obvious answer to it. And it's a question about which reasonable people can and do disagree. And it's a question about which Congress has disagreed after explicitly considering it. And so the kind of the subtext of what's going on with the major questions doctrine in many cases is one side that has not been able to prevail in the political process, in the policymaking branch, which is, of course, Congress, then essentially tries to get a second bite at the apple through the executive branch and by uh, hoping that an administrative agency will both embrace the substantive policy that they prefer, but that they were not able to persuade Congress to enact, and then rationalize the decision uh, to implement this massive policy change by finding uh, in a statute that's been on the books for decades this kind of throwaway language that, surprise, has au- not only authorized but specifically sort of uh, told the agency to embrace this new policy, and, and everybody just somehow missed it for all these decades. It is. Um, not a plausible take. And it would be refreshing if everybody would just be honest about it and say, look, uh, we think this policy would be a really good idea. We weren't able to get it done in Congress, uh, but you know, our people are in charge of this particular agency. And, and so this is agency policymaking. Then at least we'd be having an honest discussion. But unfortunately, uh, proponents of the, uh, uh, of the policy that the EPA rammed through in this case, uh, by and large, not been so candid. And this is a good example of one of those decisions that when it comes out is characterized as a anti-climate change decision or something along those lines by the people who liked the rule that was overturned. But I guarantee in the future, future litigants are going to use this case to try and overturn rules that they disagree with. Uh, It sort of reminds me of the commandeering doctrine, which was originated in a gun case and then was used by subsequent litigants in immigration cases to strike down Trump-era immigration laws. So there's going to be a lot of freaking out, and there has been, uh, but it really isn't about climate change. It's about how far can agencies go, and both political sides will be able to use this ruling uh, in ways that they appreciate in the future. Uh, Another big case uh, for this term, Ruin v. United States. This was about so-called 
pill mills, that is, physicians who were, according to uh, some statute or some interpretation of statute, over-prescribing uh, opioids. What was the what was the issue here? I mean, we we talked about you before we started recording, Trevor. You just alluded to mens rea, the the, the state of mind uh, of somebody who is uh, accused of committing a crime. Why was mens rea an important element in this case? Well, since the, the about 10, 15 years now, we've had this quote-unquote opioid crisis, which is really an overdose crisis. Uh, and a lot of the people who've been blamed for it, as listeners probably well know, have been doctors. That's the popular narrative that doctors overprescribed. Now, the question here is, if you're a doctor who's prescribing opioids, uh, you're doing something that's a little bit legally dangerous, no matter what. Uh, you're giving out under some sort of authority, drugs that would not be able to be given out by anyone else in society, essentially. And you're doing it purportedly according to your medical opinion. Or you, Let's say you believe that this is good medicine. You say, I believe that this guy should get 20 pills a week. And then the DEA comes in and says, ah, we think that you should only give him 15 pills a week. And they use standards that are not to say the least, not well-defined. Over-prescribing and misprescribing are not even well-defined terms, and every doctor who's in this field is afraid of being you know, attacked by the DEA who suddenly decide to second-guess their medical judgment. The question in this case is, what if a doctor actually believes that they are practicing good medicine? So take this, the, you said pill mills, right? How do we differentiate between a good doctor and a pill mill? Well, I think one way of doing that is to say, if a doctor is knowingly and not even intentionally practicing medicine. They're just selling prescriptions out the back door. They're not seeing patients at all. They're just saying, how many do you want? I'll give them to you. You can think of some sort of situation where there's not even a pretense of practicing medicine. They are just a pusher with a medical license, right? So that's one way where you say their subjective intent, the mens rea, as you said, uh, is not to practice medicine, but to just distribute as many opioids as possible. The question in this case was whether or not the statute and the Controlled Substances Act and the regulations passed under it uh, sort of require as a matter of criminal law and federalism that if a doctor is practicing law medicine in good faith, uh, then they need the jury needs to be able to assess that and say, we believe that this doctor was practicing medicine in good faith. And even though the DEA said that they transgressed some limit, they believed differently. And so they can't be criminally liable. So it's a, it's a pretty important decision for this time now where doctors are quite scared and, and patients are suffering through pain because they're being underprescribed opioids. And everyone seems to believe that doctors are who we should be blaming for this. But we really need a good standard of criminal liability in this area almost more than anything else, especially because the DEA has been on, on a rampage over the last few years. Clark, mens rea is a huge issue for the federal government in particular, especially given the kinds of laws that are written and then sort of just ignored by the state, but taken up by agencies. Yeah, I mean, um, mens rea is, a, is an ancient concept, and it um, speaks to the uh, alleged perpetrator's frame of mind. And unfortunately, there are any number of, of criminal laws, especially in federal law, um, where the same act may be criminal or not criminal, depending on the mindset of the person who undertook that act. And this is a perfect example of that, right? Because we have medical doctors who um, have an ethical obligation to treat their patients. Um, and some of those patients are in excruciating pain from a variety of horrific physical conditions, and they require an extraordinary quantity of painkillers, in this case opioids, in order to have any relief. 
That is a medical fact. There's no disputing that. The question that becomes, how can the government distinguish between doctors who are exercising sound medical judgment to provide an amount of opioid painkiller to their patients that is appropriate um, for that patient's particular needs versus doctors, and there are some, who are abusing their professional status to, in effect, act as drug dealers and provide drugs uh, to people whose medical condition doesn't require it. That is an extraordinarily difficult distinction to make in many cases. And unfortunately, as our listeners probably won't be particularly surprised to find out, the government doesn't do a very good job of exercising judgment um, and recognizing that there can be uh, perfectly valid medical reasons to provide large quantities uh, of opioid medication to certain patients. So this is really what that case is about, is essentially saying how uh, should the federal government, what standards should the federal government have to meet before it convicts a medical doctor of crossing that line and in effect behaving as nothing more than a glorified drug dealer. Uh, and uh, for a lot of the sort of the culture of this and understanding uh, when physicians might want to prescribe large uh, quantities of opioids, Jeff Singer is, has written extensively about this, and uh, he's our, our colleague at the Cato Institute, and you can read a lot of his work about why he views this as as more appropriately an issue relating to standard of care uh, rather than, uh, you know, you lose your license as a physician for providing a, a substandard standard of care. And uh, I, I think his his thoughts are very well taken on this. On uh, vaccine mandates, of course, uh, during the pandemic, we've seen all manner of uh, government attempts to try to cajole or get the government to restrict the way in which uh, employees and employers interact with one another with specific respect to vaccines. And what were the specific actions in the cases that we saw, multiple cases here about uh, mandates? I believe it was the vaccine or test mandate was one of the ones uh, at issue here. What was what was the nut of this case? These are two cases that came out in what's called the shadow docket, which is which is really a docket that is dealing with uh, injunctions, which is when you seek to stop something in a court before you get like a full hearing on it because you will be harmed possibly if it goes into effect. And the Biden administration issued two vaccine mandates. One was through the Occupational Safety and, and Health Administration, OSHA, saying that every single employee employer that has over 100 employees needs to have either vaccines for their a requirement of vaccines for their employees or that they test. And this was sort of interesting uh, newfound power of the Occupational Safety and, and Health Administration. Uh, and so there were employers who went to the court very quickly and said, uh, this is going to harm us. You need to stop this. The other one dealt with medic people who are employees of Medicaid and Medicare services, so more directly under the control of the federal government than just every single employer in the country who has more than 100 employees. And they were both decided differently on this injunction standard. Uh, under the OSHA case, the 100 employee case, uh, the court enjoined that and they, and they did not let it go into effect. And this was Although it's not a decision on the merits, which is what we say when the court hears the full case, it was very related to the major questions doctrine that I talked about with the West Virginia case, which is that uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration suddenly found the ability, according to them, to mandate vaccinations. 
And the question here is like, historically, they talked about, you know, water on the floor and asbestos in the ceilings and those kind of things that are hazards within the workplace, not a hazard that comes from without the workplace against which people can or cannot get vaccinated. And so the court said that this was sort of one of these major questions that suddenly for the first time in its history, under this emergency temporary authority that the that OSHA claims, they found the ability to mandate vaccinations. And the question there is like any other question that we ask a lot at Cato, which is, well, if they can do this, what else can they do? Could they mandate any sort of, you know, vaccination? And we suddenly have monkeypox. So is monkeypox vaccination? Is that okay if they decide that this is an emergency? And But on the other hand, in the Medicare and Medicaid employees' case, uh, the court upheld that, saying this is much more directly under the executive branch. These people are more directly tied and they're many requirements that they have to do to be participants in this program. So that one was upheld. Uh, and so it's it's a little bit, some people complained about both. Some people said they were both wrongly decided. The author in the review, Ilya Soman, longtime friend of Cato, he thinks that they were both wrongly decided, that, that it was good to strike down the 100 employee one and good to uphold the Medicare and Medicaid one. Free to disagree on that. Uh, it's kind of a close question, I think, in, in the Medicare Medicaid one. Uh, but again, that's sort of one of these major questions cases that was decided before the big one in the West Virginia case. And, and it's it's also worth noting the court specifically said in this case, Congress could have given that authority and they did not. Absolutely. It could have said, you know, uh, the OSHA has the right to regulate everything about their workers' health, including things that they bring in outside of them. Because you, the questions, we talk about slippery slopes a lot in the law, right? The questions are like, you know, how much things that you do outside. So you endanger yourself by going to a party in COVID times, and then you come back to the workplace. But all the other things you could do to endanger uh, by going to, by being obese, by not exercising, all these things could be considered in some sense OSHA regulations if you stretch that authority too far and the court was not willing to let them stretch it that far. Uh, Clark, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated v. Bruin. New York has a sort of a checkered history with gun laws and uh, litigation over those uh, gun laws. What was the what was the question presented here? Yeah, so the Bruin case out of New York is um, a huge development in Second Amendment law. Um, the Supreme Court, as you may recall, said nothing about the meaning of the Second Amendment for over 200 years. And it wasn't until uh, Bob Levy and Alan Gura and I brought the Heller case to the Supreme Court in 2008 that we finally got any uh, you know sort of definitive interpretation from the court. And even then, it was only a very narrow one, which was that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun at home for self-defense. That left, of course, a whole plethora of, of questions unanswered, and that's quite common in constitutional law. The court typically answers narrow questions incrementally. What was so interesting about this case is that the question of whether the Second Amendment applies outside the home, and that was basically the issue in this case, is one of the most significant uh, questions. And so the court instead of moving to sort of very incrementally and answering relatively sort of trivial questions, which is what it sort of indicated that it seemed to have a preference for doing, it tackled this case. And the specific issue in this case is the constitutionality of a permitting system that is unique to just a few states. So California, New York, Massachusetts, and a couple of other states, in order to get a permit to carry uh, outside of the home, you had to demonstrate some kind of special status, a special need. Um, and this was 
determine, not really by reference to any objective criteria. It was just up to the whim of a local government official whether you needed to carry a gun outside of your home. And you won't be surprised to find out that unless you're a celebrity, New York almost always said no. And so this is referred to as a discretionary permitting system. Most other states, in fact, uh, more than three dozen states have what's called a a shall issue permitting scheme. It's very much like getting a driver's license. If you meet certain statutory criteria, they have to give you the license. So uh, the Supreme Court, uh, not surprisingly, struck down this discretionary permitting scheme. And I say not, not surprisingly, not really even as a matter of Second Amendment law, just as a matter of basic constitutional law. There are no other constitutional rights that I'm aware of uh, that the ability to exercise that right is left entirely to the uh, whim, the subjective whim uh, of local government officials. So I really don't think it was any surprise that that this discretionary permitting law uh, went down. What was somewhat more surprising was the breadth of the majority decision, which was uh, signed onto by six justices and written by Justice Thomas, um, and opens a, 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 a huge kind of can of worms about um, the, whether the court is going to consistently embrace this new approach in other settings. And the new approach I referred to is essentially jettisoning or at least uh, displacing the standard kind of tiered scrutiny that the court normally applies in, in constitutional cases where essentially they ask, well, how important is this right? And then we'll decide how much scrutiny we're going to subject uh, the alleged infringement to. And here they simply said, look, we're just going to look at text, history, and tradition. And if the thing that the government is interfering with is something that people have been able to do for a long time, we're not going to do any kind of balancing. We're not going to subject it to any kind of tier scrutiny. We're just going to strike it down. So two questions, two big questions on the table in the wake of that decision and the rationale in that decision is what other laws are going to go down, what other gun laws are going to go down under that analysis. And frankly, I think it's a lot more than I originally thought. Uh, so it, it's a, there are a lot of things that are now in play that weren't before. And then second, are they going to bring this approach to other constitutional rights outside of the Second Amendment? And if they do, my goodness, what happens then? Because just to take one example that all, you know, we libertarians all care about, the right to earn a living in the occupation of your choice is absolutely every bit as historically uh, well-established and, and, and significant uh, as carrying a gun. And if the court applies this new approach consistently, then we are going to see a much, much different jurisprudence of economic liberty and property rights. Now, whether they're actually going to do that <laughs> is a different question. But if they did, then suddenly a lot of things look different. Uh, Trevor, you're nodding your head. Uh, what other, what else might we see uh, stemming from this case? Well, there's there, 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 part of the opinion, and I think Clark will agree with me, is a frustration with how much the lower courts had been taking every gun law and weighing it and being able to find whatever result they wanted with some, frankly, quite absurd gun laws. Um, I worked on a case two or three years ago that dealt with California's 10-day waiting a period to get a new gun as it applied to people who already owned guns. So you, so you, you owned 15 guns, but every single gun you get, you have to wait 10 days. And you ask the state to be like, is there any possible, you know, you could say the first gun might be for suicide purposes or, you know, you want someone to cool down. But on the 16th gun, it's just hard to figure out. But nevertheless, that was upheld and the court didn't hear that case. So the, the lower courts were able to kind of do anything they wanted. Now it'll be interesting and we'll see how they try and get out of it. Uh, I'll give you an example. We filed a few uh 
briefs and cases about felons being not allowed to have guns. Now, that sounds like obvious that felons shouldn't be allowed to have guns, but don't forget that the government, the state and federal government can almost define anything as a felony. So if you committed tax fraud 40 years ago and you don't have anything else on your record and you're not allowed to have a gun, is that okay? And courts have generally been saying, that's okay. The state can define anything as a felony, and they think this person is dangerous and go for it. Well, now you're going to be like, okay, well, how did text, history, and tradition treat prohibiting people from owning guns? Because felony used to mean something much more serious than it does today, usually exclusively violent crimes. And so will we, now we do a test. We purportedly don't do a balancing test of what the state says versus the danger of the person. We say, was this kind, this person who committed a nonviolent classified as a felony 40 years ago, was that the kind of thing in text history and tradition that we said you're no longer able to have or even hold a weapon or a bullet for the rest of your life? Because that's a pretty extraordinary penalty for what is a constitutional right. So it's going to be very interesting going forward. Another case we're going to discuss here, important to uh, scholars at the Cato Institute, that is Carson v. Macon. This was a case out of, I believe, Maine relating to school choice, so-called town tuitioning. Uh, for a quick rundown of that uh, case from Cato's Neil McCluskey, that's uh, available the Cato Daily Podcast. But um, what this case is different than a lot of other school choice cases because it involves uh, issues in which there are may not be not a, there may not be a public school where uh, young people could attend. Yeah, so uh, I did quite a bit of school choice work um, when I was at the Institute for Justice before coming to Cato. And, and my sense is this. There are certainly principled objections that some people have to the government uh, funding um, other people's participation in religious activities. But it is also the case. It is emphatically the case that uh, the, the religion argument is sometimes used in bad faith simply to try to thwart um, efforts by a given state to uh, provide educational options to parents. And I think it's rather clear that's what was going on in Maine, because if you look at the history of what happened here, um, for more than 150 years, uh, Maine, where my father was born and I have a lot of family, um, it's a very rural state. And so um, a large number of school districts don't have their own public school system. So for more than 150 years, Maine has addressed this uh, challenge by providing parents with state funds that they can use to send their children to the school of their choice. Could be public school, could be private school. Um, up until 1980, religious options were permitted. So religious private schools were allowed to participate in that program. And then in 1980, the state attorney general decided that, uh, well, this might be uh, a, a problem under the First Amendment. This might violate the Establishment Clause, so we're not going to allow religious schools to participate anymore. But then in 2002, in a case that was brought by IJ, the Zellman case out of Ohio, the Supreme Court clarified that uh, as long as parents are exercising an independent choice to enroll uh, their children in a religious school, um, that that breaks any link. And then if they are using state funds to make that choice, that breaks any link, uh, you know, sort of between the government and the and the uh, religious uh, institution. 
and it's permissible. In the same way, and this is not a radical uh, development. This is uh, people have been using, for example, uh, Pell grants in the GI Bill to attend religious colleges uh, for as long as those programs have existed. Uh, parents also use uh, federal funds to send their children to uh, daycares or childcare facilities operated by churches and other religious uh, institutions um, for preschool. So none of this is new, none of this is radical. But anyway, um, in 2002, the Supreme Court clarifies in the Zellman case that uh, Maine's concerns about violating the Establishment Clause were baseless. And guess what Maine does? Does it then reconsider and say, okay, well, we're going to let religious schools back into the program? No, it doesn't. It just continues to exclude religious options with no real rationale at all. Uh, that, that at least not one that will stand up to serious scrutiny. And of course, in Carson v. Macon, serious scrutiny is what it got. And surprising no one, uh, Maine's decision to exclude religious options uh, from its school tuitioning program was rejected by the Supreme Court. And this really represents, I think, in some way sort of could be, if not the last brick, it's very close to sort of the last brick in this edifice of trying to assert, in some cases, I, again, I think in bad faith, um, these these supposed religious objections to educational choice programs that give parents a full range of choice. And in, in, in that regard, it's a very uh, exciting and, and long-awaited development that I think is going to help crack open the education blob finally. You know, one of the issues that uh, Neil McCluskey has raised uh, in relation to this that is going forward is what does this say about the institutions of public schools themselves and the fact that religion itself has to be kept far away. That is, because, because you are effectively compelled to send your children to some sort of public school, there are questions that are raised about religious exercise there. Yeah. What do you, Trevor, what do you think of that? Well, it's, I mean, it's a point Neil makes very well that, that there's an interesting idea which was pushed by Maine in this litigation that the public school is neutral. And that the the education, the secular education right that people have is to a neutral education, which I'm putting that in scare quotes. It's it's this some sort of platonic view of education that if you let people learn religious doctrine or uh, new age doctrine or something else, that's non-neutral. And so the baseline is neutral. And this, of course, isn't true. You can tell from the fights in recent years over what we're going to teach in our schools. And of course, those have been going on ever since we've had public schools. The public school is not neutral. So by excluding religion and purporting to be neutral, it's sort of a strange claim. Excluding religion is neutral. Whereas like there is no, I mean, on on some basic educational philosophy like perspective, there is no such thing as neutrality in education. So we are rapidly running out of time here, uh, but I do want to get to a couple of things. One, of course, Constitution Day is coming up. So uh, uh, for either of you, what should people expect when they attend or uh, tune in? Well, we'll be having a, a similar programs we've been having for now. This is the 21st year. Um, we will be having panels covering many of the cases that we discussed today and some that we haven't discussed by the authors of those articles, uh, which will be interesting. You know, we get to have a panel on guns and opioids and abortion. Uh, there is an article covering the abortion case, uh, which is not representing Cato's view, but we don't ask our authors to represent Cato's view in any case in the Supreme Court review. Uh, the Keynote lecture at the end of the day will be given by Professor Akhil Lamar of Yale, uh, who's arguably the preeminent law constitutional law scholar in the country, or definitely on the very, very short list. He's a very iconoclastic, very nice man who has varying different opinions than a lot of people expect about things. He's very good at 
differentiating between his constitutional interpretation and his policy preferences and saying that maybe some things that I think are unconstitutional are good ideas and some things that I think are constitutional are bad ideas. And so I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Uh, he'll be discussing the question uh, philosophically and practically of term limits for the justices, which is, of course, highly relevant uh, in these days. So it'll it'll be, it'll be on uh, September 16th, which is a Friday, going from roughly 1045 to 6 p.m. So you'll be able to tune in online uh, or if you want to attend in person uh, at the Cato Institute headquarters, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, in the next term of the the Supreme Court, and this will be discussed, of course, at Constitution Day, the case of Sackett, which when I say the case of Sackett, I'm talking about uh, uh, at least two, maybe three uh, times, twice before uh, that this has been an issue. Why is this such an issue? Uh, this is about property rights and uh Correct me if I'm wrong, the Army Corps of Engineers' ability to determine what is a navigable waterway. Am I am I wrong about that, Clark? Detail this for me. <laughs> well, this case is almost Dickensian um, in in the spectacle that it has provided. And and it really goes back to something fairly simple, which is that this family, the Sacketts, wanted to build a house. And um, the the Environmental Protection Agency said, well, you know, it, it may be that you're not allowed to do that because your house might be too near um, a, a protected, uh, uh, you know, wetland um, that's within our jurisdiction. Now, we're not going to tell you for sure whether you can or you can't build the house. Uh, and the, the, the only way that you can find out for sure is to begin construction. And then if it's OK, we won't do anything. And that's how you'll know it's OK. But if it's not OK, you'll accrue fines. And then, Trevor, I don't know if you remember what they were, but they were somewhere between like thirty five thousand and seventy thousand dollars a day. Um, and then you would accrue those fines for however long it took the EPA to to advise you that you weren't supposed to build uh, in this area. And then that's the only way you get a definitive answer um, uh, to the question of whether you could build a house. And of course, this is just so outrageous. Um, but then again, you've got a Supreme Court that cares almost nothing about property rights. And so, you know, it's this interesting sort of competition, like, is the EPA behaving so outrageously that it overcomes the Supreme Court's general indifference to property rights? Um, and, and so far, uh, the, the answer, somewhat surprisingly, um, has been yes. The, the, you know, the EPA is capable of creating an object so absurd that, uh, you know, that, that the Supreme Court's indifference to property rights um, uh, can't lift it or however the formulation of that is. So, so now we're at the Supreme Court, I think, for the third time uh, where there's a fairly narrow question about whether uh, the, this asserted wetland um, uh, can plausibly be described as a water of the United States, which is the jurisdictional hook that the EPA has been invoking um, in order to just mess with this family um, interminably. Um, and if the answer is no, it's quite possible that this, this could be the end of the line for the EPA. And it's an interesting, this, the question of water of the United States, what's the definition? I, I once had a property rights litigator say, you know what the definition of a water of the United States is, right? It's whatever the Army Corps of Engineers says it is. And that's that's just how we kind of are. Now, just constitutionally, that can't be true. The birdbath in your backyard cannot be a water of the United States. There has to be something that differentiates between something that is navigable or continuously in touch on the surface or some test that differentiates, you know, your bathtub, your birdbath, something like that that says, hey, the EPA cannot just 
assert that whatever they think is a water United States or the Army Corps of Engineers is. So it's it's a narrow question. In this case, they've been fighting this for 15 years, I think. And uh, we'll, we will get an answer for a case called Rapanos, which didn't really answer the question. So hopefully the court answers the question this time. All right. And one last enticement for people to get their copy of the Cato Supreme Court review. Uh, Rachel Barco, who is uh, uh, an excellent uh, spokesperson on uh, all all manner of issues relating to criminal law and uh, over criminalization in our justice system, gave the, I believe, Simon lecture last year. And uh, that speech has been turned into an essay that will be in this Supreme Court review. Clark, if you don't mind, just uh, tell us just a, very quickly about her and about uh, what what she's trying to tell us. Yeah, she's Rachel is just wonderful. She's such a a, a smart and um, and and interesting person. I've I've had the good fortune to interview her about this book, and then she was uh, kind enough to, to to do the Simon lecture and you know distilled to its essence. Oh, and I would say this: she's hard to typecast. She was a Scalia clerk, believe it or not, um, but now she teaches um, at uh, NYU uh, Law School and. Uh, uh, the the essence of the book, I think, could be quite appealing to uh, libertarians because it's fundamentally um, uh, a lot of it is about public choice theory and the way that uh, uh, government actors have uh, captured and perverted uh, the institution uh, of criminal law. And um, she lays bare just how dysfunctional our criminal justice system has become. Um, and in a way that is no, it doesn't really, um, you know, sort of requiring uh, people to take sides in the current, you know, uh, culture clash over progressive prosecutors, you know, versus law and order types and whether, you know, the the, the um, uh, spike that we've seen in certain categories of violent crime during COVID is going to be enduring or not. Um, instead, it, it's, it's a really largely dispassionate and therefore even more horrifying uh, expose of what our criminal justice system really is. It is not law and order. It is not what you were taught uh, in, in middle school or in high school about the way the system works. And it is assuredly not the system that is both described and prescribed in the text of the Constitution. Um, it, it really has morphed into little more um, than a conviction machine that exists simply to maximize the number of bodies that we that we put in cages. Um, and um, it really, her argument, which of course I strongly agree with, is that it really has to be reconsidered and reconstituted um, from the ground up in order for it to um, uh, both to conform uh, to the constitutional requirements that are laid out uh, in the Bill of Rights um, and to be a system that, um, that merits the, the trust, confidence, and support of American citizens. All right. Constitution Day coming up at the Cato Institute. Uh, please join us or tune in. Trevor Burris uh, needs to get back to work uh, putting together the Cato Supreme Court Review just in time. It's a just-in-time production method here for the Cato Supreme Court Review. And Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs. And of course, you can tune in. Uh, you can watch after the fact uh, elements of the Cato Institute Supreme Court uh, uh, review and Constitution Day festivities at our website, cato.org. Normally, it's at this point where we bring you a Cato Audio exclusive, a brief chat with a Cato scholar on a broad topic of importance to people who care about liberty. But we went a little long with our discussion of the most recent Supreme Court term. But we still want to hear from you about what we ought to be talking about. 
If you have a broad question you'd like to have answered by a Cato Scholar, send it to catoaudio at cato.org, and we'll get it answered in an upcoming edition. Sweden adopted a light-touch approach during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the outcomes for viral spread, excess mortality, and socioeconomic consequences compare fairly well against other countries. Sweden's experience suggests that strict policies imposed by many other countries may have done more harm than good. Dr. Jeff Singer and Joan Norberg discuss the comparative approaches. Good afternoon, everyone, and good evening to those of you who are looking in from Europe. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The virus that causes COVID-19 has now become endemic after first emerging two and a half years ago. In the pandemic's early days, many countries' public health officials curtailed economic and social activity to various degrees, prescribed social distancing, enforced lockdowns, required masking, and pushed for other non-pharmaceutical or NPI interventions to reduce illness and death. Those NPIs imposed an enormous economic and social cost by greatly reducing individual liberty in exchange for promised health benefits. Elsewhere, most famously in Sweden, public health officials were fiercely criticized for implementing less harsh so-called light touch NPI measures. Sweden's approach presents a fascinating quasi-natural experiment to evaluate the merits and demerits of the more liberal approach to managing the COVID-19 pandemic and to evaluate whether the loss in personal and economic freedom was partly compensated by a decrease in illness and death. In February, 2022, the Corona Commission, an independent third party commission set up by the Swedish government under pressure from Sweden's parliament, concluded the government's strategy of not introducing lockdowns as many other countries had done was quote, fundamentally correct for maintaining individuals' personal freedoms over those in other countries. But the commission was critical of the decisions not to introduce, quote, more rigorous and intrusive disease prevention and control measures in February and March of 2020. It also said that the government had delegated too much responsibility to the Public Health Agency of Sweden and the responsible bodies for decision-making were not always clear. Figures from Eurostat, the European Union Statistics Agency, showed Sweden had 7.7% more deaths in 2020 than its average for the preceding four years. But that was among the lowest excess mortality rates in Europe. Sweden's outcomes on viral spread, excess mortality, and the socioeconomic consequences of COVID-19 compare well with other countries and suggest that strict NPI policies impose more harm than good. Yet Sweden's policy still has its critics. As recently as March of 2022, a group of scholars from Sweden, Norway, Belgium, and the U.S. co-authored a lengthy literature review and commentary in the journal Nature, in which they claimed, quote, Sweden's public health agency was systematically incorrect in their risk assessments and ignored scientific evidence on suppression strategies, airborne transmission, pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread, face masks, children in COVID, long COVID and insufficiently implemented and adapted their pandemic response plan, which was constructed for an influenza pandemic. It went on to state the precautionary principle, which is in fact written into the EU's function has been ignored since a wait and see passive approach has been followed. Sweden never aimed at suppressing transmission of infection only to not overwhelm healthcare 
contrary to the advice of the WHO and the European CDC, close quote. In the review, which was cited by LA Times business columnist, Michael Hilsick, the authors pointed to data showing Sweden had significantly higher rates of COVID deaths per million population than its Scandinavian neighbor countries. Joan, you're a scholar in the history of ideas. You're also Swedish. You live in Sweden and you experienced uh, your country's pandemic policy firsthand. Uh, I think someone with your background uh, in the social sciences can help us put this into proper perspective. So let, let's hear what your experience and your perspective is. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting to hear about these uh, views on Sweden from the outside and the comparative perspective. So let me tell you what it looked like from here in Stockholm uh, at that time. You know, one Thursday afternoon in early March 2020, a few minutes before 3 p.m., I got a call from a nurse who asked me, did you sit in seat 12A on the flight from Munich on February 29th? And uh, I checked my boarding card in my cell phone and answered in the affirmative. Okay, she replied, you probably know why I'm asking. And I did. Uh, apparently I'd been sitting next to the novel coronavirus and was told to self-quarantine for two weeks. And this was the moment I realized that Sweden would quickly be submerged by the pandemic because Stockholm had just had its sports break, which is a week-long spring break from school, when many Swedish families go to the Alps uh, for skiing. And since in Stockholm, this was in the last week of February, it was right when Northern Italy experienced booming infections. And in the Austrian Alps, we saw the same infections appearing at this time. Um, it's what scientists call an amplifying event. And that's important because we didn't have the same kind of spring break at that time in Copenhagen in Denmark or in Oslo in Norway or in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, it happened in Stockholm at that time that we were exposed to the infections from Italy. The barbarians had already broken through the gates, and apparently I was one of the barbarians. That's what I learned from that phone call. And the next few months obviously would be a very frightening and confusing time of isolation, disease, death, loss of loved ones, and a terrible strain on the healthcare system. But as you all know, in comparison to what was going on in the rest of the world, there was also a sense of normalcy in Sweden. As if possible, uh, to talk about normalcy. There were no stay-at-home rules, no shelter-in-place orders. We were not confronted by police if we tried to get somewhere or ask about our papers or our business going there. There were no mask mandates, and we did not shut down schools, restaurants, offices, libraries, shopping centers, gyms, and so on. There were a couple of restrictions, most importantly, public events, public gatherings were limited to 50 people. But apart from that, it was mostly voluntary recommendations. Swedes were asked to work from home if they could, limit travel if possible, reduce interactions and meetings as much as possible. So life was not normal. The streets were quiet. When I took the subway or had to go shopping or went to a restaurant, I was quite alone. We didn't have the same kind of crowds that we usually do. 
which means that people adapted to the situation voluntarily because they wanted to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. But this difference, the fact that this was based on recommendations and not legislation, meant that if you really had to go to work, if you really had to meet someone, you could do it. No one would stop you. And most importantly, and I think there seems to be a consensus on this on the panel, our kids were not thrown out of school. They did not lose a year, not even a month of education. And I think we'll see the consequences of that ahead. The Social Democratic Prime Minister, Stefan Levin, summarized the policy in this way, quote, we will never be able to legislate about everything. We will never be able to ban all harmful behavior. Now, it's actually a matter of common sense and individual responsibility. And in March 2020, such words were radical, and to many, they seemed dangerous. The rest of the world looked at us and talked about the Swedish experiment. But that's not what it looked like to Swedes. To Swedes, it looked like the rest of the world was engaged in an experiment to lock down societies according to an almost Chinese model, in a way and at a scale that had never been attempted before. Sweden just did what the Swedish authorities had already planned for and war-gamed for in advance, and actually what most other health agencies had planned for in case of a pandemic. But all the other agencies and governments, they threw out the manual the moment they panicked, the moment they became frightened by the virus or by the voters. Sweden became an exception because Sweden did not throw out the manual. And I think this was partly because of the a very unique division of power in Sweden's system of government. Sweden's government agencies are independent, uh, unlike most other government agencies. The government appoints the general secretary, but is actually not allowed to tell them what to do. Agencies are not supposed to act according to the political will of the moment, but according to the law and the facts. They're supposed to trust the science, if you will, and come up with recommendations. And then governments can always overrule them and legislate and lock down if they want to. But by tradition, it means that they often defer to the expert agencies. You might say that they sometimes hide behind them. So even if voters or journalists demand tough action, the government can say that the public health agency has said that nothing has really changed. This is still the best course of action. And to me, it's incredibly interesting that the public health agencies in neighboring countries like Denmark and Norway, they also opposed closing schools and closing borders, just like the Swedish one did. But in those countries, those agencies are not as independent. And the decisions are primarily political decisions, and politicians had to show strength. Plus, obviously, modeling and nightmare scenarios scared all these politicians. We all know about the infamous Imperial College uh, modeling about how many people will die, would die in, in Britain. A Swedish team inspired by the Imperial College model said that by July 1st in 2020, Sweden would have 82,000 COVID-19 deaths with this model. It was not easy to stand firm with scenarios like that. But the um, government still kept on saying that the health agency says that this is the right course of action. So let's stick, let's not throw out the um, 
the um, the book. I guess that it's easier when you have someone to blame if things go wrong. And I guess it's also might this might be one of the benefits of a modest political style, not having strong men pretending that they have the answers to all our questions. And interestingly, Swedes generally welcomed this policy. There were obviously opposing voices and heated debate, but public trust in both the government and in the Social Democratic Party and in the public health agency increased rapidly during the pandemic. And in another sign that Sweden is different, as, as Jay pointed out, all major political parties in Sweden were in general agreement, except for the populist right. The populist right in Sweden wanted to shut down the schools and fire the lead state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell, who, who led this response. But apart from um, the far right, um, most political forces were in agreement. And how did it turn out? Well, we've heard about this and the comparisons and uh, others will have more to say about that, I'm, I'm sure, during the questions and answers. But we definitely know that it worked better than anyone expected. There were mistakes, there were some stupid decisions, and uh, I agree with the assessment that many deaths among the oldest could have been avoided because we waited too long to stop visits to nursing homes. But at the same time, I got that call about the trip in late February. The barbarians, that is us, we were here in Stockholm spreading the virus before we even thought of coming up with a response to this. And we do know that despite of this, the models were completely inaccurate. By July 1st, Sweden had not suffered 82,000 deaths, but a bit more than 5,000 deaths. And in fact, Sweden did better than almost all other European and North American countries. And one reason why the models failed is that they, just like most politicians, underestimated how people spontaneously adapt to new circumstances and new information if you have a clear message. They, the the modelers, the uh, the politicians, usually thought about it in terms of lockdowns versus business as usual as the only two alternatives, but failed to consider a third option, that people actually engage in social distancing voluntarily when they realize that lives are at stake. And this also meant that we kept most of our freedoms, something that you can't count, something you can't put in a chart. It's just a year or two, they said, and then we can get back to normal. Well, what if you don't have a year or two? What about the young who have lost a year of education and who will never get their formative years of self-discovery and social adaptation back? As witnessed by the sharp increase in loneliness, anxiety, drug abuse in many countries, there is more to life than surviving it. So my preliminary assessment is that I agree with the Independent Swedish Corona Commission when they said and concluded in their review by saying that limiting measures essentially to recommendations which the population are expected to follow voluntarily is fundamentally a correct approach. Thank you. Jeff Singer and John Norberg are senior fellows at the Cato Institute. It's been a year since the United States exited Afghanistan under a timeline drawn up by the Trump administration and executed by the Biden administration. While the United States and its allies maintain sanctions on the Taliban that now controls Afghanistan, Afghans themselves are living through a humanitarian and economic disaster. 
Peter Sahar Khan talks more about that one year later. Very briefly, I just wanted to touch on some things that I always get asked on, which is basically, you know, now that the U.S. troops are out of Afghanistan, um, what does this, why is Afghanistan important for the United States? And especially as, uh, on, in technical terms at least, the, the U.S. war in Afghanistan is over, there are no ground troops anymore. So why should Americans care about Afghanistan? And again, what kind of goals or U.S. interests is engagement with Afghanistan meeting? Now, I think there's several things to sort of think about, but I wanted to talk about uh, two in particular. The first has been this conception that Afghanistan will remain a safe haven for terrorist groups. And just currently on, on July um, 31st, actually Al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, was killed um, in, a, in a US drone strike and he was uh, finding refuge in, in Kabul. And it's raised some concerns that perhaps Afghanistan is going to become a safe haven for terrorists again, especially for Al-Qaeda, which is a group that, that wants to attack the US homeland. And you have prominent voices like General Frank McKinsey, who's basically used this one-year withdrawal anniversary to argue that um, the U.S. intervention should have continued basically in, indefinitely. Um, we also have some polling data, and polling um, shows that Americans are second-guessing the wisdom of exiting Afghanistan as well. Support has plunged about 20 points last August and has stayed around 50% 50, 50 since then. Yet the consensus um, view of the U.S. intelligence community is that Al-Qaeda has not reconstituted its presence in Afghanistan since U.S. With, uh, forces withdrew, and that the U.S. intelligence in Afghanistan continues to remain strong, even though U.S. troops have left. So. This idea that perhaps, um, you know, that Afghanistan and Taliban again will fall into becoming a safe haven for terrorist groups is, is not really um, based on, on strong empirical information. But again, what does this all mean for the Biden administration? Now, I, I think that it is essential that the Biden administration and Congress create a plan of engagement with Afghanistan that focuses on diplomacy and basic needs. And the first step in that direction would be to unfreeze Afghanistan's assets that remain in the New York Federal Reserve. But the Biden administration announced just yesterday that it won't release those assets because the Taliban was protecting Ayman al-Zawahiri. But without talks and the release of these assets, the U.S. is harming Afghans more. And it's not really changing the Taliban or, or changing what Andrew, you discussed, which is, um, you know, uh, a calculated coercion, they're not really impacting um, the, the Taliban's calculated coercion in any sense by holding on to these assets. And I think the question that's important for the American public to think about is, is holding these assets really making a difference um, to the Taliban. And if nothing else, it's increasing more suffering for the Afghans, which is something that we should avoid at all costs. And also just from a regional point of view, if Afghanistan continues to weaken, then it will create further instability in Central and South Asia, which would be harmful in terms of um, violence, in terms of food security, and also in terms of the illicit drug trade, which I'm happy to um, answer questions about in the Q&A uh, moving forward. Um, but in addition to creating a feasible plan to engage with Afghanistan, the Biden administration must investigate the failures and deceit of the U.S. war in that country. And this has sort of been one of my own interests as well, is how, who do we hold within the United States? Who do we really hold accountable for the U.S. war in Afghanistan and all the failings that, that took place there? Now, currently, there seems to be some appetite for accountability in Congress. Um, the House um, Foreign Affairs Committee held two hearings on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan as a way to evaluate 
its disastrous evacuation um, in the fall of 2021. And the Senate Foreign Relations Committee also held a hearing on the humanitarian on the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding with rapid speed in February of this year. But since then, there have been no hearings. And perhaps, you know, stinging from the politics of the botched withdrawal, President Biden didn't even mention Afghanistan in the State of the Union address, which I found really surprising as somebody who has watched the war very closely. If a 20-year war is, is, is ending, I would imagine that it should be mentioned in the State of the Union. Um, that said, you know, while Senator Tammy Duckworth's uh, nonpartisan commission to study the war in Afghanistan is, 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 is part of this fiscal year's National Defense Authorization Act, I think it's a welcome move. And the U.S. government needs to still have more public hearings on the U.S. involvement in the war there. Um, and one of the reasons why I say this is because it's important for the American public to hold U.S. policymakers and military leaders um, who misled American public on the war's progress accountable for all the misconceptions and misperceptions about Afghanistan, especially in terms of Afghanistan's reconstruction, the waste that occurred and the rampant uh, corruption that exists within the country as well. Now, the US government has spent more than $2 trillion on the war in Afghanistan, in addition to the lives of thousands of US service members and conservatively tens of thousands of civilians as well. If the Biden administration is serious about creating a human-focused foreign policy, it needs to conduct an investigation into the US war in Afghanistan that spans domestic and international issues. So along with this, you know, one year anniversary that we're discussing and having this event on, instead of just also thinking about the Taliban and their evolution, I think the US needs to also think about its war on, and accountability on its end as well. Sahar Khan is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Generations of people have been taught that population growth makes resources more scarce. Not so, according to a new Cato book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Authors Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley found that over time, resource abundance increased faster than population through discovery and innovation, a relationship that they call superabundance. But large populations are not enough to sustain superabundance. To innovate, people must be free. To learn more, order your copy of Superabundance at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.